Welcome to the Organic Gardener Podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. Let's get growing. Hi, listeners. I'd like to invite you to visit our website at organicgardenerpodcast.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, download our ebook on organic gardening basics, and get started on building your very own organic oasis today. Welcome to today's episode of the Organic Gardener Podcast. I am super excited to introduce my first guest from the Aero Conference that I went to that I told everybody about, the expo and annual meeting. And Patty was actually one of the very first people that I talked to there. And right away, I knew she had to come on the show. She is an extraordinary educator who is changing um, how the kids eat in the cafeteria, how students learn. I mean, she teaches agricultural. Okay, I'm just going to let her tell you what she does. She does much better than me. Welcome to the show, Patty. Well, thank you for a wonderful introduction, Jackie. Glad to be with you today. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you. So, uh, I, you know what? I was going to tell myself that I need to put the date in the show. So today's October 4th, 2015, if you're not listening this week or if you're listening in the future. Um, and so go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, um, if we start with now, now I teach 7 through 12 in agriculture classes at the Hinsdale Public School, which is a little tiny school in a tiny community out in the middle of uh, the High Line on US 2 out in eastern Montana. And so that's what I'm engaged in currently. I've been doing that for eight years. And when I started, um, I decided I had to have a greenhouse. But I have been in the community since 1992, ranching and running outfitting business and really doing business stuff along with raising a child, that um, I knew that school board would not allow a, a greenhouse. And so I um, did a bunch of research and come up with a passive solar design in a few other states, and I decided I was just going to design my own passive solar. So we constructed a root cellar that's off the or a greenhouse that's off the grid. And when I took it to the school board, I had already secured funding through grants and dropped a brainstorm on them, and already had it okayed by the groundskeeper that it was going to be all right to put the structure where we wanted. So that is actually what started my journey in agricultural education with teaching kids how to grow food with the Passive Solar Greenhouse. Okay, do you want to tell us or kind of explain what Passive Solar means? Yes, Passive Solar means we're just collecting the energy from the sun. So we have no mechanical. We're not storing the energy, nor are we wired to use energy. So it's really on the pitch of the angle and its um, location on the earth. So we're like two degrees off of due south in a, a really steep angle on the glazing wall to collect all the winter soleus we could possibly collect. And then that sun comes through that uh, I think it's 12-foot glazing wall, and it comes in and hits uh, water barrels. There's 20 water barrels that are full of contained water that are black, and that sunlight hits those water barrels and heats up those barrels. And then the whole building is a 6-inch wall um, constructed just like a house that 
has no air gaps in it as best as possible. It does have window, one window and a door with the windows for cross-ventilation during summertime, but in the wintertime it is all closed up. So then that energy is contained in that water. Then at night when the air temperature drops below the temperature of the barrels, that energy is radiated back into the building and keeps the building relatively warm most of the, most of the winter. So it's off the grid. We do have a backup solar heater, all runs on passive two, and a passive solar vent that um, vents out when it gets too hot, kind of makes a chimney effect and pulls heat out when we're too warm. And so it's it's uh, more or less on autopilot without any expense. Okay. I guess I kind of got a little bit confused between the greenhouse and the root cellar. Like, is it all one... Oh, yeah, no, two completely different things. Um, the root cellar is a whole different project that was just completed last year. The passive solar was built in, in 2009-10. Oh, okay. So it's actually in the center. If you look at pictures on our Facebook site or anything, it's in the center of our outdoor classroom, the passive solar greenhouses. Okay. Uh, no, the root cellar, you told, is buried into the side of a hill mm-hmm. or into the ground right yeah yes, okay and then the, the solar greenhouse the... is like an actual greenhouse up on above ground yeah but the passive solar actually was built like a house so it has a it has a it would have been a, a five or six foot crawl space if we'd made it into a house but we earthen filled that back after we built it. So we built a, a cement foundation dug deep in the ground that was a six or eight inch wall on that of concrete, insulated concrete form. So we built it just like a house. The foundation's identical to a house for the passive solar. And then we put a um, water containing, uh, I don't know, reservoir underneath the ground. And so that also is part of our heat sink, too, because that's holding energy from that water warming up during the summer and then radiates in the winter. But that's just part of the heat sink of the passive solar greenhouse. And so it looks like it's all above ground, but a lot of its um, working components and why it works is is under the ground, too. Can I add? But the Yeah, go ahead, Jackie. How did you learn how to do this? Well, I come from uh, a working farm where that we just work with our hands and we just do it. And um, I was—I guess I was never schooled that you can't do something. So I always take the viewpoint that I'm going to do something until I prove to not be able to do it. So we just do it. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then you were talking about the root cellar? Yeah, the root cellar, um, that came, kind of everything kind of evolved after the passive solar greenhouse because we built the outdoor classroom, uh, the agricultural kids did, to teach other kids how to grow food because um, I was not in the school system long and recognized that um, the kids had no idea how to grow food. In fact, they didn't even know what plants were what, and they didn't know potatoes were growing under the ground. And so I'm like, wow, we've got to get to teaching kids how to grow food. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, one thing evolved from another to another to another. So along the way, we built a no-till garden to grow just mostly production food for this cafeteria after I convinced the cooks that they could actually serve local food, which started by asking them 
what they would like to serve, which was cherry tomatoes, because that's the simple, the simplest given thing that you could possibly get a cook to serve is a container of cherry tomatoes, because we actually pick them, wash them, and deliver them, and then all they do is rinse them and put them on the the salad bar. So that was a, our beginning relationship with the cooks in the outdoor classroom, and actually turning into a full blown farm to school where we're actually whatever we grow we eat now and it's served in the school but that that was a five-year building relationship that we're still building on okay um well the rose cellar led to why we got to the rose cellar was wow now we have all this production because we got three different gardens in town, including the outdoor classroom. You know, ones where older people have give up gardening and would say, "Hey, we'll take that," and then we turn it into a no, no-till, uh, no chemical garden, and then we grow food in it. Well, and then we started having extra winter squash, potatoes, and onions, stuff that we could store. And we're like, "We need a root cellar," so we wrote some more grants and we come up with a design and. We went for it again, and it is completed and running like clockwork. And it's in the back side of the hill that overlooks the Malk River on the school property that's right outside the agricultural education shop door. And But the, if you was to drive by it or anything, you wouldn't notice that anything was there. There's some pipes coming out of the ground and a little tiny solar panel to give us light because that building's off the grid, too. We didn't even hardwire it for electricity, so... The lights we do have down in the cellar running off of solar. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always do like to start the show kind of asking about your very first gardening experience. Like, who were you with? Like, how old were you? Were you a kid, an adult? What'd you grow? Like, just to kind of get to know you a little. And now, sure. you, you're not originally from Montana, right? No, I'm from southern Michigan, okay. and I've got vivid memories of my first food experiences because of what we were all about. My my family grew a, a fruit and vegetables, and we sold them right in our own garden, and then we had a farm, and we raised our own beef animals and raised all the feed those animals needed, and so my whole life evolved around growing food, and, and it's all I could think about. When I was school in school, I was an extremely poor student, and I spent most of my time um, daydreaming about what was going on at the farm. So, okay, uh, well, that's interesting. So, uh, how did you end up in Eastern Montana from Southern yeah, Michigan? Is that kind of a similar almost, climate, or no? No, nothing to do with a similar climate whatsoever. Michigan is own five to six and very tempered and misty, cloudy weather a lot. And um, actually can grow most anything there from peaches to blueberries to obviously the corn and soybeans that have inundated its fields lately. But some raspberries, all kinds of things. And I remember picking um, sour choke cherries as a child in the orchards and going and picking apples in the orchards when they were going to, make them into apple cider, and that was always a big event in the fall. You know, they'd have pumpkins out front and all these great big crates of apples, and we'd go inside and you'd smell the the cider and the and the, the sugar donuts. They sold sugar donuts and cider we ate together. It was just phenomenal, but 
and I would now as an adult, I'm like, why would you mix those two items? But <laughs> it was a, it was just a Southern Michigan culture of food and what you did there. I remember some of my fondest memories as a kid are going to this place called the Jericho Apple Cider Mill. <clears throat> and they would have these jellied apples, but we didn't get those very often. We usually got just, my parents would get apples and then cheese and crackers was our big. And then we'd go for a nature hike. And there was this cute little farm near there that had like animals that I could actually see, like with a barn where we would eat an apple before we went on our hike too. Cool. But donuts and apple cider, I don't know, sounds good to yeah. me. Yeah. But my first memory actually is in the strawberry patch that um, oh. my parents grew strawberries and uh, we would have these three foot, hundred foot row of strawberries. And oh I was about eight or nine and I can remember sitting on the hill on the cool damp sand and my fingers were all pink and um, a little sticky, you know, and smelled really sweet and just radiating the strawberries everywhere because then we picked ripe strawberries and, and they were unchanged by modern agriculture and so they were full of juice and flavor and just phenomenal and we were picking them into these wooden uh, court boxes and we'd have to pick 12 of them to make a flat and I get it was my actually my first job of getting paid and it was, I got paid five cents a quart to pick strawberries and wow did they ever taste phenomenal and be full of juice that is um, not something that you can experience in the current um, modern grocery store. You'd have to go someplace like Rocky Creek Farm in Bozeman and pick your own in order to get something similar to that experience today. Okay. Um, mm, fresh strawberries. You know, that's funny because you know who planted tons of fresh strawberries was this woman, I don't know if you know her, Laura Behenna, but she's the one who introduced me to the Arrow today. She was on my show back and she was at the conference, her and her, uh, her boyfriend, Carrie. We're there, um, and she grew a ton of fresh strawberries in her front yard in Kalispell in the summer. Awesome. So, uh, okay. So do you want to tell us what, what organic gardening or earth-friendly gardening means to you? Sure, but did you want to I, – I felt like I better explain oh. how I got from southern Michigan back to my Oh, yeah, that's somehow. right, right, right. Sorry. Uh-huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, well, some, some of this all is from me um, – being bored out of my mind in high school. And so I I was working for a cattle fitter, which a cattle fitter grooms cattle for other people. And then we show them in county fairs and state fairs and regional fairs all around the, the central part of the United States. And I started working for him when I was 14. So I just loved the cattle, the the connection between the human and the animal, I guess, and the, um, the traveling. And stuff and so that was my first real job outside of the farm and uh, I went to um, when I graduated from high school I was I was just going to do that and they're like no you need to get to college so I went to Michigan State University for for a two-year program which landed me in in Grass Range Montana at the Enbar Ranch as an internship for two summers and so I had already traveled to Montana because my mother was adamant that we went on a big field trip every summer as a family um, trip. And so I'd already traveled a, a large percentage of the United States before I graduated from school and knew that I just loved Montana. And so when I did my internship at uh, Michigan State, I, I only applied for the Rocky Mountain Front, which was only three positions. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, that was crazy. How did I even find a spot to go to? <laughs> but 
So where did you uh, go? Montana accepted me. <laughs> I went to the Edinburgh Ranch in Montana out in Grass Range and learned how to AI cows. And so I was in the AI camp there what does AI on 350,000. Oh. Artificially inseminating them. Oh, huh. Yeah, so I, I was just a cowboy, cowgirl through and through, you know. And So anyhow, um, when I got done there, um, they offered me a full-time job in Montana. I was only 19 years old and Montana was um, I was living very rural, and it was quite um, not the place to meet any anybody else. So I decided, well, no, I I would need to go somewhere else. So my old boss from Michigan was at, uh, in New York, and so I went to a cattle ranch upstate New York and worked there for ten years and traveled all of the United States and Canada from that place except for California at the time. So anyhow. That landed me in, in Oklahoma when they wanted to move west and start a ranch out west. And then I met my ex-husband, and then we were both moved to Montana, threw in good jobs and went out on our own and eventually got to Montana. Oh, my goodness. You have been everywhere. <laughs> and yeah, I, have crazy, to, I have to just tell you. So I have this friend who's, like, totally into the PBR, the professional bull riders. <laughs> so I know more about cows this year than I ever would have any other time in my life. Otherwise, yeah. I would have no idea what you were talking about and couldn't relate at all. But because <laughs> I've been studying PBR a little bit here and there, I know a little more about it. Uh, oh, my goodness. You've been everywhere. Okay. So, and now you're in eastern Montana. You're still pretty far from the front, if people don't know. The Rocky Mountain Front is like um, the eastern side of the Rocky Mountains that go all the way from Montana down to Mexico and um, so the eastern the, the front is where you come off the plains so you drive you drive across Montana for hours and hours like probably what 12 15 hours to get from where you are to the front you know yeah we miles? are quite a ways out there I don't know we are uh, let's see it was a five five hour drive to Great Falls Oh, so maybe like seven hours to the front. Yeah. Because Great Falls mm-hmm. is only a couple hours. But anyway, so then all of a sudden you come off the plains and you see these giant mountains. And that's where all the wind comes from, too, coming out of those mountains. But just, it's an incredible view. If you've never seen the Rocky Mountain Front, it's something to experience. Okay. Uh, otherwise, we're going to have a three-hour interview. So we're going to move on just a little <laughs> bit. Uh, tell us what organic gardening or earth-friendly gardening means to you. Or organic farming, um, maybe even. Yes, wow. I I think it's the future. And maybe not necessarily just the word organic, I guess, but um, the plant community and the um, biological life of the soil and the insects and the, the whole community of biological life. That is the future. Mm-hmm. It's the future to everything, in my mind. Okay. And what inspired you to start using organic techniques? Um, I guess mostly because I'm a mother and I have traveled a lot and I, I'm more of a visionary big thinker and I, I can definitely can get way, way out of the box. And I see no future in anything but that. I like that. I like all that. The mother and the visionary and thinking out of the box part. So then how did you learn how to uh, grow food organically and sustainably? 
Well, I guess it gives us about a out of necessity and each year you learn each year what to do different the next year and stuff and so when I was out on our ranch and, and raising my child and stuff we was had really big gardens from probably an acre one year we grew, grew an acre of marigolds and what a sight to see that was but so we were always growing our own tomatoes and, and a lot of our own food green beans and such and one year I had I didn't have time to be out doing the traditional hoeing, rototilling thing, you know. So I, I just took straw bales out there and laid them um, each each um, flake at the t- at a time on the ground, all all around the strawberry or all around the tomatoes. And that fall, when I pulled those tomato plants, which of course back then I I pulled tomato plants. That's what everybody has always done. And today I w- I don't pull tomato plants, but um, then I pulled these tomato plants and they had like six foot roots because those roots raced underneath that mulch of that straw after the moisture, you know, were extremely dry in 12 to 14 inch rainfall there in that climate and an extremely sandy type um, soil. So, you know, moisture was a key component to be able to do successful gardening. And so the lights come on, I'm like, Wow. Why wouldn't everybody do this? So I've been covering the soil ever since. I, if you go by one of my gardens, you people look at it and think, "Wow, that person does not know how to garden because nothing's tilled, and most things aren't even in straight rows, and the soil's covered up." What do you mean pulling the tomato plants, and you don't pull? Like, I'm confused. Um, we, I mimic nature. And so the um, plants, especially in the no-till garden where it's not right at the school and not not where people are out there every day and looking at it, you know, this is a garden that's mostly production. And so we we don't take any plants away. We let Mother Nature break them down into the system. And a good way to explain it is um, I'll ask the students if they had any diseases in the particular garden because they go there maybe two or three times a year. To this no-till garden because it's uh, really no management. It's so easy to take care of that we don't go there to pull weeds much or anything. So they don't go there very often. But I'll ask them. I says, "Do we have any disease in this garden?" And they'd say, "Well, yeah, we had powdery mildew in the pumpkins." It says, "Oh, and what did we do with that?" And he says, "Well, we took the vines to the compost or to the dump. We removed them." I'm like, well, why did we remove them? And they said, well, because the spores from the powdery mildew would get on the ground and we'd have it on other plants the next year. Like, okay, good. I said, do we have any pests in this garden? Well, they would say, I guess if you consider an aphid a pest, we had aphids in the sunflowers. And I'm like, well, how did they get in the sunflowers? And they said, well, the ants herded them in the sunflowers. Says, oh well, what happened to the aphids after they were in the sunflowers? They says, well, the ladybugs' lace wings were eating them, and the black wasps lives their life cycle with the aphids. Like, oh, so if we was to take all these plants out of this garden and take them away, where would the beneficial insects' eggs go? And the kids would say, well. They are in the egg state and underneath the leaves, and you just removed them from the site. And one kid raised his hand and says, they would be at the landfill in Glasgow if we took them out of here. Why would we take them away? (laughs) 
well, we mimic nature and we let them break down and we don't take them away. That's interesting. Okay. So, and so the tomato plant, you just let them like lay in their the t- bed? Tomatoes are grown on fences because we do quite a bit of vertical growing because we want a lot of production. So we're, those tomatoes are all growing on fences and we leave them and the other tomatoes grow up through them the next year. But they're pretty broke down come spring. You'd be surprised. I remember you telling me about that there. That was fascinating. Uh, so they just grow up like the fence and then the next year you just plant new seeds or do the seeds come back from the tomatoes because they're just staying there? Do you even have to... Well, we usually harvest, harvest the tomatoes. Oh. And if it's getting right. on toward a frost, we'll, we'll harvest them green and take them inside and ripen them inside. So the, the tomatoes aren't aren't uh, dropping too many seeds on the ground, although once in a while you get a volunteer. But we um, transplant plants into that fence row. We oh. grow down the plants in the passive solar greenhouse in the spring. Of course. What am I thinking? Okay. So do you want to tell us about something that grew well this year? Well... I can tell you about a, a event that made things not go so well, and then I can tell you genetically what came back from that. We had a hailstorm that um, that destroyed most things to the ground, except for the strongest of corn, which only made the corn only be left with stalks. And so we had planted a lot of um, new plantings this year, which is in what we call the edible schoolyard. So we had put in some new plantings on, on the back fence of the school at the, that we consider to be a wasteland. And so we had watermelon, cantaloupe, pumpkins, and probably 10 or 12 different kinds of winter squash on the edible schoolyard, some of which was on a, a teepee that we've built out of rebar, which we grow vining up the teepee, you know. So after this hailstorm, everything was just beat in the ground. But the winter squash and pumpkins, come back, instead of normally growing the great big long vine, you know, they normally grow, they, these bushed out and made vines go everywhere, so they sprawled all over the ground instead of being long where we could train them to go up the teepee or the fence well. But uh, about five or six of those varieties just have done stellar, um, unbelievable. Uh, Northern Georgia Candy Roaster has just done unbelievable since that hailstorm because we're only what 60 days out 65 days maybe out from that hailstorm and it's got fruit that's mature and good 12 to 14 some of them 16 inches long and tons of them and so i would say that was probably our our most excelling plant neat uh, I like that whole story about how it started off with a hailstorm that destroyed everything and then came back with uh, lots of good produce. Okay, how about something you're excited to try differently next year? Hmm. Well, I guess I'm always excited in how to motivate people into doing more more natural gardening, I guess, and mimicking nature and, and growing local foods and consuming local foods. So that's always my challenge. Are you going to tell us a little bit about how you got the local beef in the cafeteria? Sure, I'd love to because I'm such a beef geek, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, my students <laughs> raise beef. That's what we're known for in our region here is growing beef and we sell 
feeder calves in the fall, and so most people only finish out the beef that they're going to eat themselves. But um, a couple years ago, my son was still in school, and we have our own beef, even though we're not running them on our own range. We run them on shares. And so him and some of his buddies, they said, well, why don't we just donate our own beef and we'll just eat our own beef in this school? Because we had done some food miles with the younger kids and we had discovered that our beef was coming from Houston, Texas. And I know quite a bit about the beef industry and I'm like, wow, we are eating like drama beef, which is the worst beef in America in our school system. And I'm like, wow, this has got to change. This is not going to happen on my watch. Well, so the older kids that were in school at the time could feel my passion. And they were beef kids. And they're like, well, let's just eat our own. To heck with all the rest of the stuff. <laughs> so that stemmed from let's try to figure out how to do that. Well, and then we run into policy of where it had to be slaughtered and blah, blah, blah. And so it turns out that uh, it wasn't economically sound business for us to even donate the beef because we would have had to drove it all the way to Chinook. So somebody would have had to take two and a half hours to drive one of our beef all the way to Chinook and then them come back and then wait two weeks, drive back there with a freezer unit, which we don't own, and then back again. And then when we get it here, we had no place in the school to store it. And so it was just... I problem after problem, and so I thought, well, the easiest way to solve this is we'll just buy Montana beef, and so I call up Katie Bark, who's the, um, she's the head of team nutrition, uh, nutritionist in the state, and she and I have been become wonderful friends, and we've already had a long relationship before the beef thing come up with, so she says, well, we can get it processed, we can buy processed meat from Bear Paw Beef and Chinook, and then feed it to the kids in the school, so that's what we've done. And so we've done that every since, which this is now, I think, our fourth year of feeding um, the students Montana beef. Well, and the, the beef is just phenomenally good. And so about the second time the cooks served it, I, I kind of make a round through the cafeteria, just check on the cooks at the end of the day, see how things are going. And they were they were so excited, and they run over to me and say, Patty, Patty, we served 100% today because of the beef meal. And I'm like, yahoo! And I had no idea what that meant, but I rejoiced with them. And I went to the secretary. I says, what does this mean we served 100% today? She's like, well, that means we served 100% of the population to the school today. And I must have had the most dumbest look on my face. And I'm like, we don't do that every day because there's no place for them to eat. And she's like, no, we've never done that in my 16 years of working here. And I was just heartbroken. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And so from then on, I become extremely passionate about getting good food in school. And the beef is a given here because the kids love it and and it's really good beef. We went from wasting about 90% of the beef product that was serving to now having zero waste in the cafeteria on a beef dinner. In fact, there's a picture of the waste can on our Facebook um, site that all it's got is milk cartons in it because there's no waste on the day that we serve beef in this school. I like that story, just the milk cartons and the garbage. And and you kind of told me a little bit at the 
Aero Expo about how you would look in the garbage and see what was in there and how full the cans were. And then things have changed. So now that there's pretty much milk cartons in there only. So now yeah. are other school districts getting Montana beef from Chinook too? Like hopefully the Chinook yeah, school tomorrow. district and others? Cool. Okay. We'll have yeah, to there is. Um, in fact, I think they can get through Cisco. So um, there is. It's starting to catch on. And it is a little more expensive. But when you look at the big picture, it's the only way to go. Because if we're not wasting it, right, that should be the ultimate. So I, I try to get people to think about... Um, becoming part of the solution instead of being the problem. Well, and food waste is part of the big problem. You know, we're wasting, according to Jonathan Bloom's book, The American Wasteland, we're wasting 55% of the food that we grow in America. And I'm like, that's not acceptable. And that makes me just fight mad. But that has to stop. Mm -hmm. And so I try to make sure that we get to understand and High-quality food that's grown locally is better for us nutritionally, and it's the soundest, smartest thing to do, no matter the cost. And eventually, the cost will balance out because if you could figure the cost of the, the trucking and the miles and the energy it took to do that, to get that beef here, that beef meal that we did the food miles on had 7,334 miles in it. And it was all food that we could grow right here in Montana. They had um, beef, mashed potatoes, a wheat dinner roll, a carrot, a green bean, and an apple on that meal. And it took that many miles to get that meal to our school. Just unacceptable. And so now we've got those miles down to to less than 900 because we um, can't serve our own beef and our own out of our own close local your plant, yeah, but that's all policy that's in the way, but that's still a major, major improvement over the 7,000 miles. Uh, I'll say, that's crazy, Um, Mm -hmm. especially Montana is such a beef and agricultural state. You know, we have huge fields and tons of farmland, and also cattle grow here, and that we're not eating our own cattle yeah we're a net exporter unfortunately and and uh, most people don't recognize that you know that montana exports most everything out of state and what and i think the numbers are even more distorted than the statistics show that um we export everything out except for a small percentage that's processed in the state and then we bring it back as processed product to need it in the state and so yeah our food things all messed up and we're going to need to make some major changes all right. Well, you're starting for sure and have made huge changes, and especially from such a little community. And it's just going to spreading around Montana, and I know it's going to spread around the nation too. And such an important – I mean, Mike and I are both passionate about, um, you know, how many miles becoming local voice, trying to – that's a big part of why we want to grow as much as we can here so we're not transporting food from, sure. you know, South America or even from, you know, California and Florida and different things and trying to eat, you know, things that are in season – instead of eating yeah. watermelon in Definitely. the middle of um, winter in Montana. Right. <laughs> so, and we actually, we just cut into our first watermelon and cantaloupe that we grew this year just today. And oh, the cantaloupe was so good. Uh, I didn't try I the bet. watermelon yet, but because um, the one that we did cut into wasn't quite ripe. So we'll have to cut another one. But yeah, so exciting to be able to grow uh, that here. We got some cool seeds from 
Uh, one of my guests talked about this guy, Bill McDorman, who has uh, a seed. Well, he has a seed saving thing now, but he had collected seeds from like Siberia and that are especially, um, you know, I don't know if it's cultivated, but over the years, like accustomed to growing in colder climates and they've been in the Rocky Mountains for a while. And so those finally worked. So we actually got uh, four. They're pretty little. They're like the size of a between a baseball and a softball. They're not like the huge ones you would see in the store, but oh, so good. Um, yeah. And fun. Okay. So do you, what do you want to talk about next? Do you want to tell us about something that didn't quite work as well as you thought it was going to work this season or? Oh, um, well, we didn't, we had great luck with the plants as far as, um, we didn't, um, uh, I guess the leaf plant with the cucumbers just didn't withstand the, uh, battle with the hail. And so we have very few cucumbers, and the cooks use a lot of cucumbers. I usually supply them oh. um, from August, September, and October, but that, that's been a big void. And so every time they ask, they have sad looks on their faces because then they're going to have to buy the the great big old ones from the truck and mm-hmm. don't have any flavor to them. But the kids really like cucumbers, and so they're always a goal for us to go a lot of cucumbers, and we've definitely failed epically with that this year, but that's just part of the environment, so and part of us that we have to eat something else this year. <laughs> um, I'm kind of curious. So, what are what are the kids' favorite foods that they like to eat from the garden? Do they eat winter squash? Well, we've, we're we're teaching them to eat winter squash, and we we do we grow a lot of winter squash and winter pumpkins on pie pumpkins, and so we process them in the kitchen, and we have a. Uh, processing bay where I invite students in and, and the cooks in and we just process the pumpkins into the 16 cup bag size that the cooks need for the recipes and um, we have a great time and the kids love learning new things and they, they, they're they just so empowered because they know they did it with their own hands and so come the day that we serve the pumpkin bars and the cooks tell the kids that worked in the kitchen that we've got pumpkin bars today and so you could those kids just beam with pride and uh so it's it's just unbelievable when the kids have a hand in the the production and the and processing into something other kids are going to eat and so oh that's sweet uh i have a friend who just made me pumpkin cinnamon rolls this weekend that were so good um, and that's just, there's nothing better than getting kids into the classroom cooking. When I worked at Head Start, we cooked a lot with the kids. We would cook, we would do cooking project, like I think once, just, if it was once a month or once every two weeks. And uh, it was always fun to teach them about cooking and, um, you know, there's so much math, you know, measuring and, you know, fractions yeah. and different pieces. I just think cooking is a great way to get kids involved. And then, like you said, if they're growing it, they're going to be more inspired to eat something that they wouldn't normally eat. So cucumbers, that's great. I can't remember kids eating very many cucumbers. The thing that drives me crazy that I see in the schools is when they bring snack and they, if you have carrots or broccoli or celery sticks or cucumbers, it always seems to have to come with ranch dressing. And so I I would like to get our kids away oh, yeah. from that thought. Because ranch dressing, on the flip side, is like the most fattening salad dressing there is. 
And so it just, I, I think kids need, and I think kids will eat carrots without the ranch dressing, especially if they're, you know, the carrots I've seen in the schools a lot come in a plastic bag and they're like those little, and they're, they're just not a flavorful carrot fresh from the garden. So I think that would make a difference. They're not the pencil sharpener ones, are they? The which ones? They're not the ones that look like they are your little finger and it's yeah. you a pencil yeah. sharpener. Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. those are the, like the worst carrots in the world. We did research on them, and they're actually the great big carrots that have went bad. And then they just run them through these processors and shave them down to the good part. And then they put preservatives on them and bag them and sell them to kids because kids like them. They're cute, and they look fun. But, wow, I try to get people not to eat them. Hmm. Don't I thought they own. were just we those little mini carrots. The, carrots. the baby carrots, no. they're not. They're like... Unfortunately not, no. That makes a lot of sense because, yeah, sometimes they'll yeah. be really watery and just they have, like, no flavor to them. And you know why yeah. kids want the ranch you, dressing yeah. in them and they come in the little individual they open the bag and they... bags. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and if they're slimy when you open the bag, that's bad news. That's bacteria. It's uh, no, nothing good about that. Yeah. But... Um, the ranch dressing, and that's a pet peeve of mine too. You know, it's uh, it's, and I, I'm trying to get parents, which it's really hard to get the parents to do it. It's easier to get the kids to do something before the parents. But um, if they would just look at the ingredients, and uh, their very first ingredient in ranch dressing is soybean oil, and so unless they're going to eat a handful of soybeans, I just really don't think they should eat a product that's made out of them. And so that's a pet peeve of mine. That and um high fructose corn syrup, both products, if I was to give you a, a cup of soybeans and a cup of, of field corn, you wouldn't eat either product. And so if you wouldn't eat it in its raw state, why would you eat it in its overprocessed state that's killing us? But unfortunately, most uh, adults aren't thinking. They're just kind of doing, you know. Yeah, and I think they have, you know, kind of like that, well, if they're feeding it, you know, if they if they're feeding it in our schools, it must be good. They think the schools have done the research and the nutritionists and, and yeah. there's, you know, I think no. there's some to be said, you know, they're trying their best, but just like you said, there's money and policies and different issues. Uh, there's a really good um, website called, uh, what is it? Maplight.org. I want to say it's maplight.org and it, and they talk about where money comes from in, in our, to influence our politicians and and it, and it shine the example they talk about is them wanting to put healthy nutritious fruit in for snacks and everybody's going to go for that but then they change it or they want to put healthy fresh fruit and vegetables for snacks and the kids lunches and then the food processing company lobbyists go and have it change from oh, yeah. fresh yeah. to nutritious and all of a sudden they can hand out you know, like you're saying, the plastic bags of carrots. Or right. like, I remember yep. the thing drove me crazy were the sticky pineapples in a plastic bag too. And then the, and just, um, you know, that they could change it to processed food instead of fresh food that's locally grown or gathered. And, uh, I just think we and need to And I think to that's going to change from the local, right from the schools themselves, if they get their um, local wellness committees um, working properly, those will self-adjust. And they have in our school pretty much. We've, we've really hammered away at it by getting the student's voice into the wellness committee. And the, so the wellness committee um, is the cooks and myself and the health teacher, which is our, our PE teacher and our superintendent and a, a local grandmother who's a nurse is on our wellness committee. And then student money president, and so when I talk to the student body president to get their opinion of what needs to 
change in the school, boy, they know instantly what they want. And so I take a big bath to the wellness committee meetings for them and make those changes happen. And so they wanted real potatoes and recognizable meat, and we've made it happen. So for the last two years, we've had real potatoes, and um, when we first served them, it was the first real potatoes that was in the school in 16 years. Okay, and then didn't you tell us something at the conference about how there's like a rule that says they have to have one of these committees and usually like it's buried in an yeah. island cabinet. And so if you yeah. go to your school, you can yeah. make sure that they're enforcing this rule that needs to be there, that this committee is meeting and then go from there. Yeah, it started, it's part of the federal school lunch program. So they're supposed to be functioning. Oh, and so it's federal, so it's everywhere in this nation, not just in Montana. If they get if they get uh, school lunches, um, any any subsidy from the USDA, yeah, it's it's supposed to be functioning. Okay, listeners, so get out there and find out what your kids are eating in their school lunches, and find out if there's a wellness committee and uh, see what you can do to help make sure that our kids are getting the healthiest lunches that they can get. Okay, do you, do you want to tell us about? something that's easy to grow and generally successful in your climate? Mm, potatoes are very, very successful. And so we get our potatoes from the Montana Potato Lab, and we've planted five different varieties this year. And we planted all varieties that are super good to eat, and so the cooks are excited about that. And, of course, they want the old-fashioned rusted um, Idaho baked potato. And, of course, the kids want something cool and bright colored and so we've come together and um, we make potato salad out of the ones that are cool and unusual and then we bake, make russets, we grow russets for the cooks to have baked potatoes our day and red potatoes for the um, mashed potatoes that they're cooking for us and wow the kids dig them and deliver them to the cooks and the cooks fix them and we have little waste going on on those days, too. The kids just eat it. So very successful in growing potatoes here in Montana. What kind of colored potatoes are you growing? That sounds exciting. Oh, they, yeah. <laughs> they grow everything from huckleberry gold that's purple on the outside and yellow on the inside to, to purple purple all the way through purple inside, purple outside, and even some blue ones. So they're blue inside and out. And then your Yukon gold that you can buy in the grocery store. And so, yeah, they, they get into wild stuff, but it looks really cool in a, in a potato salad. Ooh, that sounds good. Huckleberry gold, I'm going to have to try those. I'm not sure about eating a purple potato that's purple on the inside, too. Or a blue potato. That really sounds strange. Yeah, you you got to wrap your head around it. Right. <laughs> well... My listeners might know that I'm like always excited to try everything and always got my hands and buying new seeds and new stuff. So I'll probably have something crazy going next year. Okay. How about something you would steer new gardeners away from that you find is typically challenging to grow in your climate? Oh, you know, people talk about sweet potatoes, but this is not sweet potato country. I wouldn't attempt that. And I, I really want people to start thinking about improving their soils through better soil health of um, adding organic compost and keeping the soil covered and letting the worms and the microorganisms and stuff improve your soils and plant tilling radishes to improve the soil. 
rather than just add more fertilizer and water. Because if we can get the soils um, improved by themselves, we'll reduce the water usage and you won't need to buy fertilizers, which take a lot of energy to produce. So that should be the ultimate goal for everybody. You can I hear think, the rest of Patty's story in part two of this episode. I like that. Before we get to the root of things, we're going to take a moment to thank our sponsors, my good friend, Dacia Daly from Simply Josephine. It's all about handcrafted soaps and apron love here at Simply Josephine. Located in Montana's beautiful Tobacco Valley, I create everything from my home studio. Currently, I offer six different kinds of handmade soaps, three different salves, using wildcrafted plant medicine from right here in our beautiful valley. In addition to my body care products, I also make several styles of aprons. Everything is available at simplyjosephine.com. We want to share a little love with the Organic Gardener podcast listeners. We're offering 15% off. Use code OGP15 at checkout. Thanks and have a beautiful day. Simplyjosephine.com. This is Robin Kelson from the Good Seed Company. We sell heirloom seeds for common use. We offer vegetable, herb, flower seeds, um, locally adapted for our area and uh, all open pollinated and heirloom a lot of them organic or ecologically farmed we also sell seed collections to help you uh, to help new gardeners be successful in their growing we sell flower collections that are good for pollinators we sell medicinal herbs and culinary herbs all sites all sorts of seeds that would be um, of interest to new and experienced gardeners www.goodseedco.net we're having a sale right now on garlic and um, greens for fall if you're interested what's your least favorite activity to do in the garden i really don't have one Okay, I like that but too. But if I guess if somebody forced me to uh, spray pesticides, that would definitely be it. But um, we haven't had any chemicals in the garden since its beginning, and we use, um, I call it integrated pest management, but even when we have a pest in the garden to manage, we don't manage it with anything other than um, either breaking its life cycle naturally or if it's the cabbage butterfly worms we just pick them off the Brocus's family and so we do all um, natural organic type when it comes to any of the pest management in fact with potatoes all we do is um, put the potatoes in the compost and then we um, add the straw and let the potatoes grow up through it and we add more straw and that breaks the cycle of the um, potato beetle Colorado potato beetle, which is resistant to chemicals, without having to do anything but add straw to your growing beds, because they they don't like to burrow down through that. They got to get into the soil to finish their life cycle, and they don't like that. So that in itself um, is a great tip to um, to make better do you success wanna, with. Just tell chemicals. us that a little more. Into so. Into the compost pile, that's where you plant your potatoes? How big is your compost pile? Well, we take the compost out of the compost pile and add it to um, what we call low tunnels. They're four foot by 16 foot long. 
and we add the compost to them. And so we're growing really potatoes in pure compost because all we do is keep adding compost to the to those low tunnels. So they're not even growing in the soil. It's just compost on top of compost over the last five years. Okay, cool. I like that idea because that's a that's a question a lot of people on my show have talked about and listeners have asked questions about what to do about the potato beetles. So nice. Um, yeah, yeah that, and we've we've grown potatoes in the same spot for three years and never even seen a potato beetle. And we've got big issues with potato beetles in the region, so I know our tactic is working. Another big, big important tactic is to draw the pollinators in and to not be using chemicals in the area. And so we plant a lot of flowers and a lot of polyculture in our gardens where the polyculture helps each other, the plants help each other. What's polyculture? So like, um, it's like we plant lots and lots of different plants in one bed. Oh. Like when I, I was, I talked to Junior or the um, Golden Triangle teachers in a workshop this summer for two days. In fact, um, Jennifer Hillhart and Aubrey Roth come to that training. And uh, they they counted like 26 plants in one 4 by 16 bed of different types of plants in one bed. That's a polyculture. And so say the nasturtiums is helping pull the flea beetles away from the cabbages and and the marigolds are they've got a lot of chemicals in their makeup that um, deters other pests from wanting to go into the area they're growing in and they harbor they harbor spiders that are good spiders, itsy bitsy little spiders that attack other bad bugs and so so we have a lot of plants helping other plants. You know, I had to. I wanted to ask you back in the beginning, why did you have that huge bed of marigolds? That was back clear back in like ninety. Let's see, it would have been ninety four, ninety three, ninety four, and we were going to turn them into potpourri oh. and just picking the blooms. And so I had a contract to sell the potpourri blooms to my local plant guru, seed salesman at the time. But it happened to be the year that I was pregnant. And so <laughs> we did not get very many uh, blooms harvested between my ex-husband and my ranch hand and myself. Every time I went out there, I was having um, morning sickness, and the guys didn't have time to be out there picking very many <laughs> miracles. So it actually just turned into a beacon of, of uh, planes coming over to see what in the world that was that was going out there in all the prairie. It was so bright. It was such a calling statement. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But they were really pretty. We had a lot of bees. I like that. We always grow a lot of marigolds and plant them around all of our beds. And that I know that helps with mm-hmm. the insects and bugs and things. So. Yeah. yeah. And we grow a lot and of flowers. We so good. teach uh, floriculture in uh, FFA. And so we've actually even had a team go all the way to the national convention to compete in floriculture. And coming from such a tiny little school, that's quite the statement in itself. But, uh, so we grow quite a few flowers and I'll, I'll cut some buckets of them and take them and leave them in the shop and anytime somebody stand around with us and do I'll have them make a flower arrangement and then they go gift that to somebody in the community and 
the FFA kids call it, um, growing a healthier community. And so the student learns how to do flower arranging and learns about different flowers. And they make a connection between the generations that seems to always have a gap. And so when they gift it, say, to the banker, then the banker recognizes that person, that student that's gifting that to them forever. I mean, flowers just go right to the heart, you know. And so that um, project in itself has been quite remarkable. And all stemming from having lots of flowers in the garden and having stuff to be able to work with to, to even start doing something like that. What are some tips for creating a, um, a like a bouquet or uh, what did you call flower design? Yeah. Well, we have uh, really big vases because we we grow the sunflowers to um, draw in the pollinators because they're big and the bees can see them from a long ways away. So I, I'm pretty sure we probably have the majority of all the bees in, in sale in our own gardens because <laughs> we attract them for miles around. And so if a guy wonders where his honeybees are at uh, in the Hinsdale region, all they have to do is come to the school gardens because that's where they're at <laughs> so anyhow so we have a lot of them so they they're really tall you know when we grow branching ones so the, the more we pick them the more the kids get to have for blooms and the more pollen there is for the insects and so we start with really tall vases and usually have start with a filler like we use borge as a filler it's um do you know what borge is mm -hmm. like a um and so green it, leafy kind of Got yeah, leaves. and it's an edible flower. It tastes like a cucumber. Oh, really? And so anyhow, it holds it holds up all the other flowers and makes really good filler. And so we start with that, and then we stick in the, the tallest sunflower that we want to use. It's about the same height as the base in the center. And then we start just being symmetrical from there and balancing it. If we put one on one side, we put another on the other side to kind of mirror it. And pretty soon the kids stand back from it, look at it, and say, well, I need some color in this spot, and then they go stick a flower in it, and pretty soon it's done. Cool. Oh, I like that. Nobody's really talked about how to make a bouquet. Arranging flowers. That was the term mm -hmm. I was looking for, arranging flowers. Excellent. Yeah. And what a great thing to teach kids, and I love the part about taking it to the community. I love to give flowers in the spring. I always give bouquets of daffodils and think it's neat when they yeah, start out cool. closed and then bloom in somebody's desk. Uh, mm hmm Hey, what's your favorite activity to do in the garden? Oh, wow. I've got so many of them that it isn't even funny. <laughs> I guess uh, I really like taking pictures in the garden. Really? Okay. Yeah. Me too. Especially in the morning and when we start getting into August and September when the plants are really full and lots of blooms and lots of bees. We We've got tons and tons of different kinds of bees, and so we've got a big educational bee project going on that's um, teaching the kids about the native bees. And so between the flowers and the bees, I guess, there's some of my favorite outside of the picking the fruit and eating it, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, how about the best gardening advice you ever received? Wow. Well, I've got a lot of um, people that I would consider mentors that are gardening gurus. Um, 
Elliot Coleman from Four Seasons Farms in Maine is just unbelievable. I've read his books and watched his videos, and I've watched him on TV growing up all the way through his lifetime. He's been educating others about gardening, so um, I would think that he in itself about anything that he's done would be uh, some great advice. Uh, another person here in the state would be Bob Quinn, so his organic gardening mindset and visionary. He was on episode seventy-seven. Mm-hmm. Awesome! I, I, I can hardly wait to hear it. Okay. Yeah. Another one's Jeffrey one. Lawton. He is a permaculture mm-hmm. guru, and I've been uh, a geek of his too. Where I watch all of his videos and everything, and so I, I have been turning my lawn into an edible landscape, and so I'm using permaculture tactics to do so. And so I plan to not have a lawnmower within a couple of years, and it be an educational site to be able to convince people to stop mowing their lawn and start growing food. Okay, I have a couple of things i got to pipe in here. Uh, and I wanted to ask you before I forget, I'm just going to ask, how big is your school garden? Like an acre or like a um, quarter of a tenth of an acre? Well, or? well I know what an acre is. It's 43,540 square feet. But I don't know what to call the outdoor classroom. Um, I would think it's for sure a city lot. Well, well, my house is on two lots, so it's for sure about four city lots. Oh, okay. And then the back fence in the edible schoolyard, if you go on our Facebook, the Hinsdale Outdoor Classrooms Facebook site, you'll see the edible schoolyard. And so it's got a planting that's six foot by about, hmm, I don't know, maybe 30 yards of pumpkins and straw bales and all kinds of stuff that they put in there and then along the back fence. So it's really hard to measure, I guess. You just have to come see it. Okay. And we'll put some pictures so in you're the invited, along with anybody else who'd like to see it and come learn about gardening. Okay. I can't say I get over on that side of the state very often, but you never know. <laughs> I've always wanted to drive the high yeah. line to New York when I go to see my family and go that way. So I might make oh, it yeah, one of these days. yeah, in northern Michigan, U.S. 2. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome road to tour how far is bob quinn's place because i'm definitely gonna try to get over and see his place probably not till the spring but i really want bob to quinn uh, is, he's a little over three hours from me it's um yeah that's i'm two and a half bad. hours or so from haver and he's just south of haver so oh okay uh well i'm gonna have i was thinking like ever since i read about jennifer's blog that it would be fun to go on a tour and go talk to people about their gardens for my podcast mm-hmm. so maybe next year i'm gonna get to do that and then after like you know hearing these other people the other speakers at the conference who kind of traveled around different places like liz Mm -hmm. and um that woman dr laura anyway uh so i always ask questions have you ever entered a fair and you said earlier you had entered a fair do you want to tell us a little (laughs) bit about fairs oh my gosh i've entered fairs in most all over the place from New York to Michigan to Oklahoma to to here in Montana. But um, I put I, I it a national champion bowl in Louisville, Kentucky in 1983. So I guess that, that fair by itself is the, the epic of my history of fairs. But the, the highlight lately was taking the farm to school, um, the Hensel Outdoor Classroom to the fair at Glasgow and put it on exhibit. And so... That was pretty cool. 
Okay, wait, what'd you put on exhibit? The Hinsdale Outdoor Classroom. We took in the, the bee boxes and planters that said grow food and all kinds of stuff that the kids had done in the outdoor classroom because we do a lot of art in outdoor classrooms. So we had signs and we'd made a Hinsdale cafeteria banner that was a farm to school banner with the kids on the banner and stuff. And so we took all that stuff to to town along with some educational whiteboards and a, a bee matching game and stuff and so we had that on exhibit at the at the Glasgow Fair this last August. A bee matching game? Like bumblebee? Yeah. Um, honeybee? The native bee, yeah, the native bees. Bumblebees and the mason bees and the squash bees and there's there's a whole world of bees that nobody knows about because we really only know about the honeybee rock star bee. But um, the kids learn all about these other bees but, and how important they are. Like bumblebees pollinate tomatoes and squash bees pollinate all of the squash family. And squash bees are there inside the flowers and did the pollinating before the honeybee even wakes up and thinks about going to the flower. And when you look inside the flower, you think, there's a honeybee, but it's really a squash bee because they look so much alike. What kind of bees pollinate sunflowers, do you know? Um, sunflowers attract most bees, lots of different kinds of bees, because they have all those, every one of the seeds on a sunflower is actually a flowerette, and so they actually have hundreds of flowers on a sunflower, and so they're attracted, they attract all, all different kinds of bees, and, and actually pollinating flies, all kinds of stuff come to a sunflower. That's why so, they're so cool to have in the garden to start bringing in the whole bio life in community working together is that they're a good good mainstay to get stuff to come to one place to start making a healthy community. What other flowers do you like to plant? Well, for sure the borge. And uh, borge and um, comfrey both are great for pollinators, but they are also both deep miners and pull all kinds of minerals up into their leaf system. And then those leaf systems, we can take to the compost and then enrich our compost with those minerals, or we can chop and drop them on the ground anywhere we want those minerals. And so they're two main key players that we plant that both flower and do other really, really super beneficial stuff. We plant a lot of uh, Calangia, uh, Marigolds, um, Cosmos, Bells of Ireland, all kinds of stuff that we could use for the flower arranging. This year we had tough time though because most of the, the hail wiped out everything that was pretty fragile, which was most of our flowers, but we still had quite a few flowers. Do you plant zinnias? I don't plant too many. I, they are on the list to add to the um, ever growing buy me list. <laughs> okay. Uh,. How about a favorite tool that you like to use? If you had to move someplace yet again, <laughs> what tool could you not live without? Or what what tool have you carried something with you all these years through all these different places? Is there something you always have to have? Well, now that I've changed my gardening tactics to the, to the more layer cardboard compost straw covered upper, um, probably pruning shears. I'm becoming a 
It'd probably be the one because I don't. I, we don't use. Um, well, we use a potato fork quite a bit to get the potatoes out of the ground. Right. And if we're going to transplant tomatoes, that probably uses a potato fork to loosen the ground, put the tomato in. So we're not tilling. We don't till anything. I've fallen in love with the printing shears this year too. I find I grab for those a lot. I said when when my friend Lisa interviewed me, I said the tool I could live without was my wheelbarrow. Mm-hmm. But, um, yep, pruning shears, I've used those a lot this year. And I didn't even cut hardly any of my sunflowers after all. I just let them grow and they're going to the birds. And Mike actually told me yesterday, I was like, I think the birds are eating them because I went out and, and was looking at the heads and a whole bunch of the outside, like those little itty bitty flowers that you were saying that grow on top of the seeds, there's like holes there, but there's nothing on the ground. So I'm thinking the birds, and I saw a bird go land on a sunflower twice. I couldn't get a picture of it, but while I was just standing in the garden the other day in a matter of minutes. So I think he said, I better go pick them and dry them inside or the birds are going to eat them all before I save any seeds for next yeah. year. But um, yeah, yeah, we've had, my big project this year was to plant 750 sunflowers. And so I wow. did that. They all grew and they have almost all gone to seed. I was worried I planted them too late, but um, pretty much, yeah, a lot of them have gone to seed. So I'm going to have seeds for next year and seeds this winter for the birds. But it just seemed like well, every time I went out there, there were so many bees on them. I couldn't hardly bring myself to cut them. And I just like looking at them out there. And I realized I'm never going to get them yeah. to a store to sell to a florist. And I think I'm going to go with the bird <laughs> seed idea. I planted a lot of different varieties. The first ones I put in the ground were these Martha Stewart organics that grew like 10, 12 feet high and oh, have wow. huge heads like a foot wide. These Martha Stewart organics I got at Home Depot. And then Mike said, if you're going to plant all those sunflower seeds, why are you spending all this money on seed packets? Why don't you plant the bird seed that we buy? Because that's what we buy a lot of that black oil sunflower seed. And yep. so I planted uh, 350 of just those. And those, I think, were some of the best. They had the prettiest blooms. They had small flowers that would look good in bouquets. They've all pretty much gone to seed. Those are the ones that I'm talking about that the birds are on. Although some of these ones right by outside my window that ended up having like five blooms on a stem uh, are the ones mm-hmm. I actually saw the birds on eating the chickadees were down there pulling the seeds out i planted just a t- total variety i bought a bunch of burpee different seeds and so just i don't know lots of different ones but the bird seed ones worked good and the martha stewart sunflowers bloomed the biggest by far so uh okay we're over an hour so i'm gonna keep going a little bit quicker um got any techniques for cooking a recipe harvesting just anything about eating vegetables kind of gonna whip yeah, those well, four I'm questions doing into a one. psychological game to uh, get the kids to eat um you know because not all the kids are in the garden um uh-huh. every day obviously and so they um it's always a game to get them to um recognize that they should eat it so we're, we're part of uh, aubrey ross harvest of the month pilot and so I'll use the lentil example, I guess. We, we grow lentils in the area, and none of our people in this community eat lentils. And so I thought, wow, we need to change this culture, you know. <laughs> and so I just, I, the kids know that I'm in it for them, and they, they know I've got their back. And so I can ask them to do both of these things, and they probably will do it. But so... And the lentils, I asked the 7th and 8th graders to set at the tables all around the cafeteria so then they would be student leaders with their computers. And then the little kids, the K-4 through four kids, 
come in the cafeteria, and I just told them to go find an older student they wanted to sit with, and so they all did. And so then I asked them, I says, um, have you guys ever heard of lentils? And they're, and the younger kids were just like, no. And so I says, well, the kids, I says, okay. I says, you guys, who grows lentils here? And so two of the kids raised their hands and says, my family grows lentils. Well, of course, they were the sports kids. And the little kids look at them like they're just the greatest beings on earth. And they're like, John grows lentils. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, and lentils are like one of the richest, best protein food sources we can eat in the world. And people eat them all over the world. But do you guys eat them in Hinsdale? And they look at me like, no, we don't eat them here. (laughs) I said, we should try to eat them here. So here they are. We've made them into a little bit of hummus, and we're going to put them on a cracker. So let's let's all take a bite of them, and let's see what we think. And so they did. They ate them, and then they fill out a little survey monkey, and which is like three or four questions. Oh, how cool. And the, well, and the older kids are sitting there? Lesson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the older kids are only helping them. Um, go from one survey to the next survey so it goes fast on the computers. And the kids, little kids, fill out the survey. And so it was like 73% of the kids said that they they liked lentils. And it was like 95% said they'd never even heard of lentils before. And it was really high, like 65 or 70% said that, yeah, they'd eat lentils if they were on the salad bar once in a while. You are amazing. Way to go, Patty. That's just excellent. Uh, and what a way to, you know, involve technology and science and food, which any kid in school, any teacher, any parent will tell you that as soon as you incorporate food into a project, you're going to, you know, excel, but getting kids to eat lentils probably, or even hummus saying that might even be a challenge. So cool. I like that. Uh, do you have the recipe for the hum? Was like a hard, is it easy or like what? I didn't even know. I was yeah. like, hummus was made out of chickpeas. You made it out of lentils. Yeah, you can make it out of lentils, too. You can make it out of several products. Yeah. I use my cook just Google it um, to find a recipe that will work fast and easy for them. Okay. So. How about a favorite internet resource? Oh, my gosh. You know what? I am a research guru. And so I put myself through online college and have a business degree now while I've been teaching school and running an FFA. And so I'm just a research fanatic. And so as far as favorite websites, well, TED Talks is my favorite of all, um, and usually in a food or organic um, scene. But uh, Elliot Coleman's is pretty stellar, and so is uh, Jeffrey Lawton's mm-hmm. website. Okay. I'll put the links to all those. And so it's funny that you said the TED Talks because the girl I interviewed this morning whose show is probably going to air tomorrow on Monday talked about um, she's outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and she said that they have this new thing called the Biophilia um, Talks coming out of, uh, I think it was the Phipps Conservatory, and they are kind of like a TED Talk but for growing food. So I'll send you the link wow. and it'll be in the thing tomorrow. So you might be interested in I would in love those. to get on the dock. Yeah. Uh, how about a favorite reading material or book? I know you mentioned some above, but did you have a different one? You had said there oh. was uh Well, there's a, 
there is a guy that I think everybody should start learning from. That uh, his name's Frederick Kirschman. It's K I R S C H E N M A N N, and he's originally from North Dakota, and he is a organic farmer. But now he is with the Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture, and he actually works out of Iowa State University. And I started studying him about six years ago, and he was talking about polycultures and um, biodiversity of soils and and making this plant community and having everything work together. And uh, he's mostly on the the videos more than, I suppose he's got books, but I I usually don't have time to read that many books, so I usually do my research through the Internet. But um, he is well worth um, checking out and studying that he's a, He's got this whole thing figured out as far as um, what agriculture has got to do to become resilient and and to move beyond the the kind of feel good of just organic and the thinking of sustainable. This guy's way out there and he's he's um, very very knowledgeable. Okay, excellent. Nobody's recommended him, so they'll we'll like that. I'll have to check him out and I'll put the links in the show notes. Okay, mm-hmm, cool. now. I don't know if you necessarily have a business, but you're an educator. Like, do you have some advice for listeners on how to get started in changing their schools? Is that what you would want to talk about? Or do you have a business um, yeah, degree, like you I, might want to talk about something else. I, yeah, I, well, I, we could talk every day probably for a week or so and not get too bored <laughs> with you and I. But then, um, <laughs> I guess I, my latest passion is to try to get, um, people to realize, every person, to realize that there's something more they could do to better the future. And so I'm into the butterfly effect and um, small actions making uh, big impacts. And so my my latest um, visionary is to get every person to realize that they, they can either become a big part of the solution or they are the problem. And so that's right now the the cutting edge of what I try to to get people to think. Yes. So if we could just think about little things like um, stop drinking anything with high fructose corn syrup in it, that would make a big impact in the world because then the need for all of that genetically modified corn would be reduced because how we spend our dollars, how we vote for whatever the practice was that produced the product we purchased. And so if I could just get people to think, that would be awesome. I think because just, I think we do need to leave a better place for the children that we're presenting today. Uh, you're connecting the dots there, that drinking a soda has as much to do with your own health as it does to our planet and um, mm-hmm. the connection to the high fructose corn syrup that a lot of people probably don't don't realize that connection. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then, well, my final question is usually if there's one change you would like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? But is, is that kind of what you want to have for that answer? Or did you have a different answer? Um, let me think about that for a second. Because if we, if we really could get people to think and them to recognize that they are the problem, because I think the majority of the people are ignoring that there is problems, or they recognize there's problems, but they're ignoring doing anything about it. So they just kind of stick their heads in the sand. 
which is the, unfortunately the majority, where we've got to get enough people thinking that I can be part of the solution and I'm going to do something, even if it's just that small, deciding to stop drinking the soda. That's going to make major impacts. We start getting a, several of us thinking that way. We're going to change the world because we don't only got to get to the tipping point because the majority of the people don't do anything. So a small percentage of people will actually move to action, and we get those people thinking in the right direction. We're going to get things to be a better place. You are so right on, Patty. And I think that's why you have made such a huge impact um, in your community, but it's spreading throughout our state and our nation as you teach other people and you're making a difference with those kids are going to go on and learn and change things. And people who hear you speak as you grow. And as I said in my email, I hope you eventually think about, you know, going into Congress or becoming our superintendent of schools someday or something where you're having a bigger impact because mm -hmm. I mean, you've learned so much and you've, you have a natural passion for teaching and you're, you're just really good at it the way you speak and explain things and take action. But that, that is so important to show people that, um, you know, if we all make a little change in our own lives, it will really add up. And you've, you know, definitely made little changes in your lives that have added up and made huge differences in lots of people's lives. Yeah. And I think um, one takeaway, I usually, if I really need to get people to think harder, I usually stab them in the heart with a type of either statement like, think about your grandkids 100 years from now. And what are they going to write in a letter to you? Did you do anything? And you knew things weren't going well. Aww. So I just want people to do something to be the solution. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing with us today. You've made such well, a big impact. Well, you are impact. more than welcome. And I hope listeners will take some action, get out there and do something. So do you have an inspirational tip or quote to help motivate listeners to reach into the dirt and start their own garden? Yeah, just do it. Don't listen to a single naysayer. I've never, ever listened to naysayers. I hear them, and I use that for fuel to make myself go to the limit. I don't take no for an answer and just go for it. And you can grow lots of food without any chemicals. And I, I will get around people because I'm, I'm working with the National FSA a lot with their Farm to School movement and their hunger um, mission to stop hunger in America. And I just really, really believe that we can do something. And you are living proof that we can do something. It's not just a belief. Mm -hmm. Like you've shown us all that you've made these changes by just speaking up and making people implement the things that there's already rules in their community, that they have to have a wellness committee in their schools. And now you've got um, healthy food in your own school and you're changing other schools and promoting local farmers um, that are growing that meat. And so super kudos to you, Patty. You're awesome. Thank you so much well, for coming on the know. show. You're welcome, and you know, I always leave people with, because people are always eager to hear more from me when I wrap up with the, with the 
session or a or presentation or workshop, and and so they'll say something like, "Well, we can't possibly grow enough food with organic practices to feed the population." And I just leave them with a, something to think about that um, they don't have to worry about the food. They're going to have to worry about the water because we're going to run out of water way before we ever run out of food. And I truly believe growing food in a sustainable way and taking care of the soil is going to conserve the water and produce a better food product. And we're going to need less of that food product because the nutrition is going to be much higher in that food that's coming out of rich, organic soils than what's coming out of production ag at the moment. Oh, yeah. So usually, true. usually leave them jaw, jaw drop because I just really want them to think, you know. And it's so true. we got to take care of the water. So I leave people with uh, what's important in in uh, to a human, and I think it's food, water, shelter, and clean air. Mm-hmm. And you're teaching people how to have all of those here in the United States and everywhere, and it's it's important so important and i love the way that you've talked about so many easy action steps we can take today just from even putting some you know herbs in your garden some borage or some uh what was the other one that you said comfrey comfrey yeah borage and comfrey in your garden for the bees or just um just growing something trying something thank you so much for coming on the show do you want to tell us you're welcome jackie how to connect with you should they go to your facebook page or if they they wanted to reach out the hinsdale outdoor classroom facebook site or the hinsdale ffa chapter facebook site and they can see what we're doing and we have left albums on there for the root cellar project is on the ffa site that you could actually walk all the way through the process and actually figure out how to do it on your own and then the passive solar construction is on the Hinsdale Outdoor Classroom site. Okay, cool. And I guess I'm supposed to be the keynote speaker for the uh, Growing Youth Summit that's coming up in um, Livingston and Rocky Boy. And so hopefully we can get some kids to come to that and some adults to bring the kids to that. When does that take place? Um, They have one coming up in Billings, I think, here. But the growing, um, it's a farm to school leadership put on with NANCAT. And uh, Billings is October 5th, which is tomorrow. No. And then uh, Livingston's October 11th, which I'm speaking at. And Rocky Boys is on October 24th. And then they wrap up in Kalispell on October 26th. And they are teaching kids how to grow local food and to start developing farm to school in their communities. Ooh, I'm going to have to look All into that and see if I can go to the Kalispell one for sure. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Maybe I can take one of my so, grandkids along. Yeah, that'd be great. With their class. But other than that, down the road, eventually I may become consulting and still teach school because we're on a four-day school week, and so I love helping other people, and so I would think that someday I'll move in that direction. But right now you'll have to get through to me through the Hinsdale School Sites. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. And I'll send you the link when it goes on the air. Yeah, and I can hardly wait to see you at the Hinsdale Outdoor Classroom in person next summer when you're on your tour. That'd be fantastic. Okay. You got it. Thanks, Patty.
Okay, you're welcome. Did you know that you could support the Organic Gardener podcast without doing anything differently? If you're going to buy something on Amazon.com, since I'm an Amazon affiliate, if you go to Amazon through a link on my page, which every book that is listed on my website is linked to Amazon.com, you don't have to buy that book, but anything you buy that day from Amazon um, will give me a very, very small commission, but I got to tell you, it would sure help pay for, you know, just some of the basics it costs to um, keep the podcast up there. So if you like what you hear and you did want to give me just a little bit of support, um, that would be a great way for you to do it. If you're already going to Amazon to purchase something, um, like I said, all the books are linked up to um, because I am an Amazon affiliate. And so uh, just if you didn't know anything, you don't have to buy that specific book. But just if you go to Amazon through my website, um, they do still give me a commission. So um, thanks for your support. If you know somebody who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast, we would just love it if you would share it with a friend. Thanks again for listening and remember to roll.